breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Podcast Network. This is the place where if you're looking for that American Muslim who not only loves America, but is willing to take on the issues of the day. Too often, are you tired and sick and tired of just hearing about terrorism, radicalism, and not hearing from Muslims who are willing to take on this battle, willing to lead the fight? Well, look no more. This podcast, Reform This, is about every element that we can find on the issues of the day that highlight the areas that need reform. And this week is no different. I'm going to give you a little update on the resolution condemning Turkey's genocide of the Armenians. We thought that that was put off, but the Senate finally reviewed it and approved it. We're also going to do a follow-up on the Saudi story. The Saudi military air force officer, pilot, who decided to commit an act of terror. The Saudis think they solved it. Did they solve it? Yeah, we talked about this last podcast, but I think the issue bears bears elaboration and to look at exactly what the problem is. Because I've heard some media this week talking about it, and we're getting confused between Saudi Arabia's alliance with us, their um, geopolitical alliances against Iran, their new friendship with Israel, and the reality of their ideology. We'll talk about that. And Speaker Pelosi met with some Islamists this week. And what can we learn from that? So, first, I think this is an important story because probably the most significant change going on in the world right now that is beginning to present a threat to the security of NATO, a threat to the significant amount of money being fueled funneled into the Muslim Brotherhood-type movements is Turkey's AKP regime and Erdogan's cult-like dictatorship. Internally, we've talked on this program, I've talked to you about what Erdogan is doing politically. The Essentially, the Muslim Brotherhood, and they call themselves the AKP, which translates into Turkish as the Freedom, Justice, and Development Party. Oh, the same name as the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, the same name that's given for English translation of what the Muslim Brotherhood sees themselves as. And Erdogan now is seeing himself as the Caliph, the uniter of the Muslim Ummah globally, and basically the leader of the viral movements, and this is why he's seen himself closer to Iran, which is the Shia flavor of the Khomeinists, not the Muslim Brotherhood, which is Sunni, but the Khomeinists that are a viral Islamist, Islamic theocracy, Islamic state movement. Qatar is closer to Turkey now because Qatar is all in with the Muslim Brotherhood and the radical Islamists. So you see this growing, this relationship And finally, this has been brewing for some time, and I was a little upset a few weeks ago as I saw, not only upset because Erdogan was meeting with 
President Trump, and President Trump didn't give him the cold shoulder he should have as we allowed their troops to go into Syria and begin imperialistic attacks upon the Kurds and wanton war crimes that were done. As we, we have to admit, we abandoned them. But at the same time, the House and the Senate were entertaining a bill on recognizing the Armenian genocide, something that had not been done by the Congress or by the United States officially in governmental opinions. And sure enough, finally, this week, a U.S. Senate resolution formally recognized the mass killings of Armenians by the Ottoman Empire in 1915. The Turks today, or this week, I should say, right after this, put out a put out a statement from their foreign minister, from their spokesman, saying that the is this is the effect of genocide economics. Genocide economics over US politics. Omar Selik, the spokesman of Turkish ruling AKP party said in a Twitter thread that the AKP strongly condemned the resolution approved by the US Senate this week. He said that the move would would please what he called the genocide industry while poisoning Turkish-U.S. relations. He accused the U.S. Senate of acting irresponsibly, repeating Turkey's suggestion to establish a commission of historians to decide on the subject. He said this decision also shows the extent of influence the genocide economy, which is managed by fanatical Armenian interest groups and is totally based on manipulation of history, has on the American lobbying system despite U.S. national interests. Turkish defense minister, if that's not enough for the spokesperson, now the defense minister weighed in, Hulusi Akar, addressed the resolution. And what did he say? He said completely rejecting the charges of genocide and saying the historical documents absolve Turkey. And he goes on. Anyone who knows history knows how long this has been coming. Anyone who knows history knows how long it has been a travesty that the West has ignored the reality of the Armenian genocide and the role that the Ottomans played in it based on the war crimes committed against them. And anyone who knows history that is happening right now knows that the Islamists of Erdogan and the AKP are the ones most apt to ignore history and need to learn the lesson as they begin to sort of recreate sort of their neo-Ottoman goals of hegemonization of the Sunni world into one ummah. And I talked to you about some of the imams in America that are beginning to call for Erdogan to be the new caliph, as they call him our president. I talked to you about how the imam here in Arizona referred to, as he's visiting, he was visiting Arizona, but he's from New York, raises money for care and all the other Islamist groups. The radical Islamist Siraj Wahaj called upon our president, referring to Erdogan. It's a great day that this passed. Hopefully the president will sign it and the statement will be made. We'll stay tuned to this. I think another story that bears pointing out, looking at the Federalists this week, Kyle Schidler 
from the counter-Islamist grid points out that just in case you ever wondered which side the left was on, to them everything is about attacking Trump. Well, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi took time out of the obsession of ongoing impeachment efforts to meet with a group of Muslim activists this week. Kyle points out that the activists were seeking support for legislation to oppose the president's executive order banning travel from countries of national security concern. Critics insisted, as he said, on identifying the executive order as a Muslim ban, despite that affects only seven countries, two of which, North Korea and Venezuela, are not Muslim. The executive order was upheld by the Supreme Court in a 5-4 to four ruling. And just a few days ago, Pelosi met with the Muslim advocates, this legal advocacy group for Muslims, which supports most of the Islamist causes like CARE, ISNA, and other victim grievance groups. And they've, they've basically opposed, as Kyle points out, every reasonable counterterrorism effort. It's almost like a who's who of the participants of leading Muslim Brotherhood advocates, Muslim, uh, is rather, Islamist advocates, including Virginia State Delegate Ibrahim Samira. Not only is she a BDS radical activist based on a, a BDS movement that seeks to annihilate Israel economically, She's now a Virginia House of Delegates representative. But her father, a spokesman for the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood, a terrorist organization who once held, who once led an organization the U.S. government described as a propaganda front for terrorist organization Hamas, was once banned from re-entry to the U.S. for national security reasons, but later was granted readmittance during the Obama administration. Other participants included M. Gage, Muslim Voters Activation Group, founded by a former CARE leader, Koram Wahid. On and on the list of Islamists that were meeting with Pelosi this week. And I think what bears noting is that this points out that the Democrats, as they obsess on impeachment, are completely aligned with the most prominent Islamists in the United States, as they kowtow to Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and their radicalism, and also to the Islamists of victim-mongering grievance groups like the Muslim Advocates and then all the other leading Brotherhood supporters. Remember this week, Rashida Tlaib, in response to the terror attack upon Kosher Delhi in New Jersey, killed, I believe, four, including the owner, he and his wife, was perpetrated by a radical sect of black Israelite separatists, nationalists, 
that believe that they descended from Israel and not the Jews. Their horrific anti-Semitism, some of the New York Times reports and others said that they had been listening to Louis Farrakhan and other others that shared their ideology. This is the same group that stirred the Covington kids, which everybody ignored who they were. Now, I brought it up now because Rashida Tlaib tweeted out, when will the Trump administration start paying attention to white supremacism? She then deleted the tweet when it was pointed out how absurdly idiotic and offensive that was when it was actually a black nationalist radical group that did that. And by the way, the perpetrators had prison records and other things, so in many ways, while they're not Islamists, that would be on a a terrorist per per se of radical Islamists, you'd think that some of these sects would be cross-matched with previous prison sentences, etc., for weapons charges, and we'd have a more robust preventing violent extremism program, but we do not. So I think the meetings that Kyle points out are important because you'll find that it's not just about Ilhan Omar, it's not just about Rashida Tlaib, it includes the leading Islamist groups, activist groups. We saw the meeting in Washington three, four months ago, and they were the, the, the presidential candidates were running to speak to these leading Islamists that talked about the Muslim vote in an Islamist, core Islamist ideological mechanism. So, when you ask where are the moderate voices, well, on the left, they've completely gone all in with the Islamist advocates in America, and they ignore our Muslim reform movement. Next, let's follow up on the Saudi story from last week. I talked to you about the cauldron of Saudi Arabia. That was uh, basically the premise of our podcast. I talked to you about how it should not be a surprise that these folks were, that this individual was radicalized and that it might have even been a cell with others supporting him. Now nah, there's been more hand-wringing and, and discussion. And because of the Saudi follow-up and some of the conversations, I, I have to address this because it runs to the core of the obstacles to reform in the Middle East, the obstacles to reform globally. And if there's anything I want you to get out of this program is your ability to pick up on what is and what is not reform. Again, Muslims wearing a uniform of a military are ground zero. Do they belong, do they feel they belong to a Western country, a nation state, or do they belong to the jihad, the global military jihad? So frankly, it should not surprise folks that based on the Saudi educational system about the goals of jihad, Islamic military history, the goal of the state to basically be part of the ummah, the global states of Muslims. It should not surprise you that it doesn't take much to radicalize them. The Saudis this week came out and said that, oh, the the Twitter feed of Al-Shamrani shows that 
he was being radicalized by three or four imams, clerics that were funded and, and, and supported by the Muslim Brotherhood globally and that these are individuals that had radicalized many, many Muslims. Now, what is the ideology that these imams taught? The only difference with the Saudi Salafi jihadis, right? Salafism is the belief in a fundamentalist interpretation of Islam that wants to bring back the way it was at the time of the Prophet and the friends of the Prophet. That's what Salaf means. Jihadi are those who believe in a militant approach that the ends justify the means. And there's some form of jihad. So Salafi jihadism is an Islamic state mentality, not the Islamic state, an Islamic state mentality that believes in a militant component of bringing back things they were in the, the way they were in the 7th century. That's Salafi jihadism. That defines Wahhabism, Ibn Abdul Wahhab and what he did. Now you see some folks trying to say, oh, that's not what the Saudis are doing now. The Saudi state is beginning to reform that. Oh, please show me where. Please show us where the new schools of thought of Sharia are coming from. The difference between the Saudi military soldiers and folks that they say, oh, like this guy, he was radicalized in the last year. The difference is who they consider friend and foe. Now we look at some of his Twitter feed and he was posting that he's not upset at Americans. He's not upset at the West, he's upset at what our militaries do. He's upset at them killing Muslims, working with Israel to kill Muslims in Palestine. That is his narrative. Do you think that that information is not part of the milieu of what's taught in Saudi Arabia? Somehow the, the teachings in Saudi Arabia are so pro-American military, pro-American power, free markets, bringing freedom and liberty? Or does America bring... What do you think is taught in Saudi Arabia what America brought to Iraq or to Afghanistan? Or what our ideas do when they're spread around the world? The imams and the clerics there are constantly talking about infidels and those who reject God and the, the polytheism of Christians, and the, uh, which they interpret as the Trinity being polytheistic, which is an absurd, absurd fundamentalist interpretation. Because obviously, if you're Muslim, we believe Islam came to correct a few things that had happened with Christian interpretation. Now, that correction does not then say they're polytheists. Why would God allow us to intermarry Jews and Christians and say that they don't need to convert and they can raise our children if they're no longer monotheists? Again, that's an absurd Wahhabi interpretation, and those things have not changed. They still have their translation that's sent around the world that says, even in the first prayer that we say the most often in Islam, even in that first prayer, it describes Christians and Jews as those who've gone astray. There's no doubt. Yeah, we can't forget that Saudi Arabia is a primary balance against the biggest global threat in the region, which is Iran. So I think we need to, again, I'll address some geopolitics in a second. But the radicalization process, we have to, we have to remember that there's the operational component in which a guy with a 
militant understanding of Islam has a switch turned on and then he becomes operationalized and wants to wear a vest and kill innocents. Okay, so I'll give you that. Maybe those clerics did turn that switch on and the Saudis were not turning that switch on, telling him that America is our friend, they buy our oil, they give us weapons, they give us jets, and they're with us against Iran, and Israel is with us against Iran, so therefore we now have new friends, and we have to end our work with the Brotherhood, as they have in the last two years. But, then they whisper, oh, Islam is still dominant, Islam is still the better faith and better political system, Islam will still rule as eventually America will die from within, Israel will die from within, the West will die from within. This is the supremacism that hasn't been weeded out. MBS is not reforming these ideas. He's simply changing some of the rules, allowing women to drive, saying that we're their friends with Israel, etc. Those change some of the rules and the guidelines. So if the Islamists ignore the memos about who's our friend today and our foes tomorrow, and they go off script of the governmental script about who's friend and foe, that's the last stages of radicalization that can happen. But the radicalization of this pilot, as he donned a Saudi uniform, happened in his childhood, learning education in a system when he was in his grade school years and you can see things back it's obvious and and many of the media did cover some of the opinions this terrorist had five six seven years ago after the arab awakening that were clearly about sharia supremacism so the Saudis tried to clean up things the way they do in Saudi Arabia to use it as a mechanism in which to eliminate their current enemies of today. It doesn't mean they're going to fix the ideology. They're just looking at eliminating militants that are not on the script. The Saudi report, like all inconvenient truths that came out this week, said it was those Muslim Brotherhood imams that radicalized them and on and on. And the fact that it came out so quick is just sort of a convenient way to connect the Brotherhood with their problems as they tried to do after 9-11, as they tried to do after, I think there was a Kuwaiti guy that did Chattanooga's terror attack, etc. A lot of these governments will use the, the, the commonalities with the Brotherhood to blame things on the Brotherhood when in fact it wasn't a coincidence that up until two years ago the Saudis spent 50 years funding Brotherhood movements in the West. Why would they fund it if they didn't share a lot of the ideas about the mixture of mosque and state, the mixture of the Ummah globally, the mixture of their misogyny with Islam and the central nature of that teaching? So the only solution to all this is not to say, oh, we have to make sure that we vet. You can't vet these soldiers better. The Saudis actually, if they were going to vet, in their, why don't they do it in their own country? Yeah, I think the short-term solution, no more training of Saudi, Saudi uh, uh, soldiers here, do it in Saudi Arabia. I think that's probably going to be one of the solutions. But I have to tell you, you know, uh, in discussing what we do for religious freedom, 
I spent, I did three trips to Saudi Arabia between 2012 and 2016. And a couple of the trips, the worst meetings I had were with our ambassador, political appointee of Obama administration, our ambassador to Saudi Arabia. These guys are political appointees from large donors that include that network of millions that come through DOD contractors, companies like Raytheon, Lockheed, and others that have huge investments in arms sales, jet sales to foreign governments like Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and elsewhere. We legitimize it in the 20th century by saying that this allowed us to balance the threat. This allowed us to maintain stability. But that stability was a regional one. Internally, the ideology of the governments that we were feeding, and we still are feeding, missiles, jets, and otherwise that need training for their pilots, the ideology didn't matter. What they did in human rights internally didn't matter. Well, okay, so we don't care about their people. But then when we train their soldiers, and they get radical, and decide to go off script, don't get surprised, ladies and gentlemen, because these dictators, be it Assad, be it Saddam Hussein, be it King Salman and the royal family, for a long time, these dictators have long lived off of the trough of the need to be dictatorial in their governments because of the radicals of the ideas that they produce. So the opium of the masses is radical Islam, and they believe that is Islam. Are we going to have this debate? Most of the prisoners of conscience are, are unavailable to speak in Saudi Arabia so you can hear other voices. The Saudis are too busy putting in the liberals, the secularists, the, the folks that challenge the government's interpretation of Islam. That's who they're primarily imprisoning. The, if you look, they will tell you themselves, and they've created this Result, they will tell you themselves that 80 to 90% of the Twitter activity and social media activity is Salafi jihadis, is the militants, is radicals. Do you think these come out of thin air? Or it's because after the 79 takeover of the mosque by the Wahhabis, they allowed them to take over the educational and judicial system, so therefore the legal system and the education of the youth in Saudi Arabia were handed over to Wahhabists. Now you meet with them and they tell me, oh, Wahhabism isn't that bad, you misunderstand it. Oh, really? Oh, really? And if MBS is such a big former against the Wahhabis, which there are some signs that he might be, he's taking them on, which is difficult. But he needs to do that juristically. He needs to do that with clerics and imams giving sermons that back up the rule changes that he's making, and I haven't seen that yet. Yes, they ab abandoned their old alliances with the Brotherhood and the Islamists, but there's no ideological demonstration of why Islamism is bad if they're supposedly no longer Islamists in the House of Saud. And it saddens me to see some of the immediate lip service that uh, White House 
gave in saying that King Salman's on our side? How about being tough on them and saying, you know what, they need to do a better ideology of changing the, uh, uh, they need to do a better job of changing the ideology that fuels this radicalization and that we need to expect that out of them if we're going to continue to have a good relationship. That no, we won't abandon our alliance immediately because we need them against Iran, we need them for a stable Middle East so that all hell doesn't break loose, but those days may be numbered. Unless they start to show progress, real progress ideologically against the theological interpretations that undergird an Islamic supremacist Sharia state. This is the opportunity to do that. So those lives of the patriots who were killed, that included heroes that did unbelievable things, and as I mentioned last week, including Muslim that served this country and showed the great dichotomy between those who hate us that are Islamists and those who love America that are reformers. The only solution is for in, for in America is for us to be leaders in the free world to call balls and strikes. We make sure there's clarity with alliances of convenience forged just for regional stability and that we begin to hold them accountable for progress really made ideologically. So don't believe the solutions that the Saudis tell you. Don't believe the fact that this is solved because it's the brotherhood. Petro-Islam, Saudi Islam, is what's been fueling the global scourge of radical Islam. And that radicalization is not always just the end point of violence. It includes the non-violent supremacists. Remember, when the Saudis said they were going to help the Germans with their refugees, they said, oh, we'll help you by building mosques for them. That is their evangelical Islamist solutions that radicalized our community. Look at the mosques in Munich and elsewhere that are Saudi-funded and the type of ideas against the West that they fueled. That's not changing, ladies and gentlemen. All right. I hope next week to talk to you about, I know I promised you last week we'd talk about it and push it to the next podcast, but about some of the crimes done against women in mosques in America and even here locally in Arizona and that it needs to be spoken about more. And some of the reports recently have been speaking about, but yet, what's the moral liability? What is the expectation responsibility for our communities, for media and else to speak out about that? We'll talk about that next week. Thanks for being with me as always. God bless y'all. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I Jasser, J-A-S-S-E-R, and at Reform This Radio. Find our website also at aifdemocracy.org. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.